Anyway, it's great to be back with you all again today. Um, I enjoy my time uh, bringing the word to you each time. The book of Acts is one of my favorites, and uh, this passage is no different. In fact, this passage is one of the great uh, tipping points. It's really one of the fulcrums of the entire New Testament. I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. If you remember in the book of Acts, the purpose, as stated by Luke, who wrote the book, was to demonstrate that Jesus' words, you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and the world, is in fact coming to pass. We've already seen Jews in and around Jerusalem converted, some priests, and now in some detail we've learned about the Samaritans coming to Christ, and now full-blown Gentiles, an Italian man in his household, Cornelius, He represents the latest frontier of ministry in Luke's narrative, the Gentiles. Our story in the book of Acts now resumes with Peter after having introduced Paul and his dramatic conversion and call to the ministry. But it's interesting to note, in reality, in the story, they've never even met yet. Peter and Paul don't know each other at this point. In fact, they won't meet for more than a decade as Paul began preaching Jesus in Tarsus to the north, and Peter remained in Jerusalem. Eventually, Jesus' brother James becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem, freeing Peter up to move outward to do his work as an apostle. And though these two men haven't met, there is a showdown emerging between the two of them. They will send shockwaves through the church. And the church will never be the same after it. The issue will dominate the rest of the New Testament writings, appearing in almost all of Paul's letters and featuring prominently in the book of Acts. It makes such a frequent appearance in the New Testament that aside from the apostles witnessing to Jesus' life and ministry and resurrection, one could make the argument that this issue, which I'm about to talk about today, is what the New Testament is all about. If we don't understand what's at stake in this conflict, it is very likely that we don't even get the New Testament. The issue is what has become known as the Gentile controversy. The Gentile controversy. Because this issue is so important to the New Testament writers, I really want to give it its proper introduction. Some of the greatest films of our time, movies such as Citizen Kane or The Usual Suspects, use an effective form of storytelling called flashback. The film starts with the end scene and forces the viewer to ask, what is going on here? How did our characters or heroes get into this predicament? Who in the world is Rosebud? (laughs) Who is Kaiser Soze? Our text today in Acts 10 will be for us our flashback. In order for that to work, we need to flash forward another 14 plus years to the city of Galatia, to the showdown between Peter and Paul. This showdown appears in Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter 2. Follow me as I read this and listen closely. 14 years in the future. 
When Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This interaction forces us to ask a couple of questions, which I want you to consider as we read today's text from Acts. What was controversial about Jews eating with Gentiles? And two, What are the works of the law that Paul is challenging? So as we read Acts 10, and I want you to settle in because it's a long passage, but Paul tells Timothy, commit yourself to the public reading of the word. So we're going to do that. So listen as I read. Acts chapter 10, verse 1 through 48. At Caesarea, there was a a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now... Send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him, had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. 
And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, Beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all he did in both the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receive forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. God add the blessing to the reading of his word. All right. So let's unpack this story a little bit. There's a lot going on here. For starters, uh, here's a picture, I don't know if you can see it, of the night sky. <laughs> Fitting, actually. Uh, no, there it is. This is a picture I took a couple years ago in Joppa, from Joppa. 
looking down the western coast of Israel, past Tel Aviv to the right to that far point, which is Caesarea, about 40 miles away. Caesarea Philippi uh, was a major seaport city from where the Roman governors ruled. In fact, this is where Pontius Pilate stayed and where the first archaeological inscription with his name was discovered in 1961. It was a populous city, and among those that were included in the cities of the freedmen, which you talked about a few weeks back, the man Cornelius introduced here is described as a centurion, centurion of the Italian regiment. The Italian regiment was a reserve unit who could be called upon by Rome in times of war, part of the deal struck by Augustus. Cornelius was a centurion, a commander over 100 reservists. He is described by Luke as a devout man, right, who attended Jewish synagogue services and prayed regularly to the God of Israel. His household and at least some of his servants were righteous Gentiles, particularly for the generosity to the poor. Keep in mind, he was not a proselyte in that he never truly joined Israel and thus was still a stranger to the covenants. And we'll talk about this more next week. Peter, on the other hand, was a circumcised Jew, a full participant in the life of Israel and the hope of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. A privileged position, to be sure. This covenant privilege that Peter enjoyed, however, came with a few restrictions, you might say. These restrictions, along with many imperatives, were codified by Moses in what we know as the Torah, or the books of the law. God gave the law to Moses and to the people of Israel as their constitution. It was what made them a formal nation. There are two ways to become parts of Israel. One, you could be born into it. Or two, you could become a proselyte, which means you abandon any, formal, any former national associations, taking the sign of circumcision as well as the sign of the Sabbath, along with all the laws that went with your new way of life. And among these laws were strict religious observances, including Sabbath days, sacrifices, purity, and dietary laws, which some of you well know. And these laws were designed by God to set the Israelite community apart from the practices of the nations around them. The practices contained in their very doing daily lessons about the holiness of God and the narratives about life, about death. The dietary laws, for instance, which are in view in this passage, which we call kosher laws, forbade the eating of animals that scavenged other dead things. Birds of the air, vultures, right? Reptiles and sea creatures like lobsters. Jews themselves were not supposed to touch dead things if they could help it. Think about the story of the Good Samaritan. Ever wonder why the religious folk in that story crossed on the other side of the street to avoid the man beaten and left for dead? This is why. If they touch them, they have to go through elaborate purifying rituals to be allowed to go to the temple, pray, and so forth. Very inconvenient. By the time of Jesus' day, some people had made a career out of avoiding situations like this. The Pharisees bent over backwards, stretching the law way past its intention of teaching something about God to telling the world something about themselves. You see? With the arrival of Jesus on the scene, it was God's intention to bring these practices of the Jewish law under scrutiny. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount challenged prevailing views of the law's intentions and established him as the new lawgiver. 
With Jesus' sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross, the law was changing even more. Without the need for sacrifices anymore, the temple and the priesthood had to go away. Of course, the leadership of Israel, especially the Sadducees who were in power, had no intention of letting the temple cultists go. You would have to tear it out of their cold, dead hands. That's not an exaggeration. In the year 70 AD, the Roman army did just that. With the end of the sacrificial system, the question must be asked. What else of the law is becoming obsolete and must pass away? Think about it. If our constitution was canceled, what would be the point of talking about the finer points of the law? The amendments, the articles, and so forth. This is essentially what is happening to Israel because of Jesus. Their constitution is canceled. The apostles on their own and without a push from Jesus would have kept on doing whatever the law prescribed. Keeping the Sabbath, eating kosher. And up to this point, we don't have any indication that the apostles had any clue that they were meant to start leaving the external practices of the law behind. This is the first sign of it. What this story shows is that Jesus starts to give them a push, showing that the external and cultural distinctives of Judaism had to start being peeled away to expose the true plans of God, which was to start taking that precious blood of Jesus and start applying to those who were unclean from every tribe and every nation in the world. Every nation under heaven, under the covenant of Abraham. The covenant God made with Abraham was made prior to the Mosaic covenant and was not dependent upon it. The Mosaic covenant could go away and the Abrahamic covenant faith would still remain. That's exactly what is happening here before Peter's very eyes. Which is why that slide we saw at first is very fitting. The night sky that Abraham might have seen Jesus is already starting to mess with Peter's sensibilities, his mosaic sensibilities here, right? Do you remember who invited him to stay at his house after last week's miracle at Lydda? Who was his host? Simon the Tanner. Do you know what a tanner is? It's not a teacher with summers off. <laughs> it's a job skinning dead animals to make hides, belts, shoes, etc. This was considered by most religious Jews to be an unclean profession. You think Peter chafed at this? His host? Doesn't seem so. Perhaps Peter's more like us than we imagined. When we're hungry, we make all kinds of exceptions as well, don't we? I found it funny and almost endearing that Peter was daydreaming about food when Jesus interrupts him with this vision. I can relate. Hungry, Peter? Here's some food. Kill and eat. One problem, though. Unclean animals. A nice clue in this vision that Jesus adds is that he lowers the animals in what Luke says is something like a sheet with four corners. What else is commonly described as having four corners? the four corners of the earth. The nations are in view here. We see in this vision similarities to the vision given to Abraham, God's plan for a family of all nations. The animals in Peter's visions were really about unclean Gentile nations, not animals. True to form, Peter puts up a fight <laughs> with Jesus. What is Peter's response in verse 14? No, Lord. 
one of the most paradoxical responses in scripture. No, Lord. It's one or the other. It's either no or yes, Lord, <laughs> right? No, Lord. How many times does this happen? Three times. This is like a rule for Peter, apparently. <laughs> Resist three times. Deny three times. And then maybe learn your lesson. After this argument, Peter has to agree with Jesus, doesn't he? Do not call unclean what I have declared clean. See, God made up the whole clean, unclean thing in the first place. In order to teach a lesson about God's holiness. It's not actually about cleanness, right? Remember what Jesus said. It's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of his heart that makes him unclean. That's sin he's talking about, ultimately. Animals don't sin. People sin. We're unclean because of sin. They're not. Kosher was just an object lesson, really. People try to explain these laws, ignoring this lesson, and they wrap themselves up in knots trying to figure out the secret wisdom behind these food restrictions. They say God was protecting these people from trichinosis bacteria from unrefrigerated food. You think they had any more refrigeration in Peter's day than they did in Moses' day? Clearly it's not about that. Clearly. As Peter is pondering the categories of clean and unclean that Jesus just showed him, who shows up to Peter? A Gentile. An unclean Gentile. An unclean animal. Do you know what Jews used to call Gentiles? Dogs. Think there was some hostility here? You bet. The hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles in this era is hard to overstate. Consider this. Recent excavations confirm a story that the first century historian Josephus told. On the walls of the temple complex, there were signs carved in granite that read the following. No man of another race is to enter within the fence or the enclosure around the temple. Whoever is caught will have only himself to thank for the death which follows. Not a real catchy church growth formula. <laughs> Not seeker friendly. Here's where the Jewish leadership had gone off the rails in Jesus' day. That temple was always meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. Israel was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. Instead, they increasingly restricted access and called them dogs. And this is what had Jesus so wound up with enough zeal to clear the temple court to make a house of prayer for all nations. Remember the Canaanite woman, perhaps, that pleaded with Jesus to heal her daughter? Not a Jew, a Gentile. She had internalized the Jewish critique so much that when she was talking with Jesus, she referred to herself as a dog. It's a tale of hostility. In verse 28, Peter sees the need to remind everyone 
in that house where he knew what to visit, that he wasn't supposed to be there. But he had just enough faith to let it kind of play out. Here's the big issue with the law system in this passage. The law, in the hands of sinful men, creates the conditions of hostility. I'll say that again. The law, in the hands of sinful men, creates the conditions of hostility. The law activates sinful responses from insiders as well as outsiders. For the Jews, they became self-righteous overconfident and aloof. The Gentiles became violent and spiteful whenever they had the opportunity. This dynamic is what Paul calls the dividing wall of hostility. Is this the law's fault? No, it's not. This was the fault of human nature, the flesh, the Bible calls it. The law was weakened by sinful flesh leaving Jews in a powerless condition. And for the Gentile, they didn't even have access to the law. It wasn't even for them. They were not even eligible to participate in it. They were without hope and without God in the world. Both groups are up a creek. Jews were condemned under the old covenant and the Gentiles were excluded from it. Paul says it best in Ephesians chapter 2. Read this with me as I... Read it. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances in order that he might create one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Killing the hostility. So what was the course of action that Jesus had to take if he wanted to rescue both groups? What did Paul say? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That's how he's going to do it. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. But wait, you're probably thinking this, as I did. I thought Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Anybody thinking that? Okay, good. That is true. But we have to put Jesus' quote in context. Jesus said this while he was still living and had work ahead of him. It was before the crucifixion. He could only say, it is finished when the work was done. What Jesus was committed to is not prematurely ending the law, but bring it to its natural end with him. Paul was living in the days after Jesus had obeyed the law fully and established a new covenant with his own blood. Once the new covenant was established, the old covenant naturally became obsolete. Naturally. The nation of Israel on the day that Jesus died actually ended as a constitutional theocracy. 
It exists now as an ethnic group with the rights that any other nation has in the world. The same. The old covenant of law has expired. Canceled after 1,500 seasons. Imagine that. Didn't get renewed. No one is giving out rewards or curses based on it anymore. God is not in a covenant with anyone based on this anymore. If you're trying to live by some code based on Old Testament law, it's like you're trying to cash in an expired coupon. Will it be honored? No. Unless it's a Bed Bath & Beyond coupon, because they never expire. <laughs> Apparently. They must ruin my whole analogy. So when the law, listen to this phrase, expressed in ordinances, this is very important to understand what abolishing the law means, expressed in ordinances. What does that mean? Does all the content of the old law become untrue now? No, that's not what it's saying. But the whole law as a system has to be canceled in order for a new covenant to be established. The system of ordinances has to be canceled in full. It's a system. In a system, you can't just remove bits of the law, like line item vetoes. There's no such thing in Israel as a line item veto. Think of our solar system. If you were to remove Jupiter, for example, the whole system would collapse into disarray. I watch a lot of science channels, I know this. Some planets would fly off into deep space and the rest would descend into the sun. You can't just pull a thing out of a system and refer to that thing as a functioning system anymore. The only option is for the whole system to be scrapped at once. Then Jesus can create a new one and start teaching his ways anew once the Gentiles are included into the people of God. They gotta be there first and then he can teach again what is holy. The way that God teaches his law and his commands to his people now is through the Spirit, not Moses. Not Moses. Moses was the stone-cold enforcer of a code written on stone, external to the hearts of the people. This is what made it weak, by the way. The Spirit teaches us from within and without condemnation. Thank God. Our connection to the commands of God now is relational, not transactional. No longer is the law expressed in ordinances. Do or die language. It's now expressed by the Spirit in live and do language. Live and do. On top of that, Gentiles cannot participate. You're welcome. And now you have a place at the table and you didn't before. Paul says in Colossians, circumcision or uncircumcision count for nothing. What matters is obeying the commands of God. Do we as New Covenant Christians resist this new arrangement of receiving the commands of God from the Spirit in the way that the Jews rejected that? On their lips, but not far from their hearts? Possibly. Do we reduce the Spirit's words to commands expressed in ordinances? <laughs> Sometimes we do that. In our tradition, which has a high view of Scripture, we many times coincide with a low view of the Holy Spirit. 
Our knowledge of scripture can sometimes lead to an alienation of the teacher from the teaching. We say, thanks for the Bible, Holy Spirit. We got it from here. If you ever find yourself referring to the teachings in the Bible as principles, rules, guidelines, or you refer to the whole Bible as a playbook or a blueprint, you're flirting with the depersonalization of the living lawgiver and exchanging it for a dead letter. You've traded the living ministry of the triune God for one that we've made up in the flesh, a new trinity called Father, Son, Holy Bible. We acknowledge that the scripture is living and active. But where does its life come from? And how does it stay active and not become a dead letter? It is the spirit of God who animates the scripture, brings it to life, illuminates it, and wields it to divide soul and spirit, revealing the thoughts and intentions of men's hearts. Amen? Let's not forget that. It's the spirit. Jesus has another trick up his sleeve to challenge Peter on this point. And not just Peter, his six Jewish friends, right, from the circumcision party with him. If they still have remnants of hostility or even skepticism toward the Gentiles. We don't know if they should be included. The passage begins with a sign, right? Peter's vision. It's a big sign. The passage also ends with a sign. I don't know if you noticed this. It occurs in verse 46. If the vision convinced Peter at the beginning, this final sign would serve to convince his six friends who themselves were of the circumcision group. Do you know what this sign was? Tongues. Now before your brains explode, <laughs> let me explain a little bit, okay? So just suspend whatever you think you know about this. And let's look at this phenomenon as Paul describes it and his purpose, okay? Can you do this with me? Keep an open mind. First, <clears throat> I want to say this, the word tongues is just another translation of the word languages. Okay, it's just, that just means that. It means language, pretty simple. In the Old Testament, God would often use foreign nations to discipline Israel. You familiar with this? The exiles that Israel endured were all part of the terms of their Old Testament law, covenant. If they failed to obey the terms of the covenant, God told them, I will spew you out of my land, and what followed typically was that invading armies would arrive, barking out commands and languages that they didn't understand. Leaving the Jews to realize, oops, we're not in control anymore. We're out of step with God. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul emphasizes this use of tongues. In the, not in the context of an invading army, but in the context of a church which has hostility in it. where at least some of the people present were Jews who were not particularly enthusiastic about foreigners worshiping God. Here's what Paul says to them. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. 
Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. It's a sign for unbelievers. What unbelievers? What's the passage Paul said? These people. Who are these people? Jews that don't believe God. The Gentiles could possibly be included. I don't believe it. Tongues are a sign of correction for unbelieving or stubborn Israel. Jews require a sign, and God gives them plenty. A Jewish believer in any of the Gentile churches could hear former pagans extolling God in other languages, telling the stories of the Old Testament, the wonders and miracles of God. They know our stories better than we do. And we're hearing it in Arabic, Parthian, Median, Greek. What does this mean for us? Surely this must be the work of God's hands. Paul is challenging the Jews in the church to accept that God has moved on to incorporate the Gentiles whether they liked it or not. He's basically saying, if you reject God's plan, you're going to sit there and by your rejection become the outsider. And you won't know what's going on. In our passage, who are the stubborn and unbelieving Jews? Peter and his friends, right? It starts that way. Remember Peter's response to the vision originally? No, Lord. Unbelieving. Doesn't mean he doesn't believe in Jesus. He doesn't believe this. He was resistant to God's plan, and so God sent a sign as a corrective. Think of where this sign happened before this. Pentecost. Remember the Jewish leaders? They freaked out. They lost control of the proceedings. They were desperate trying to regain control and bring it back to the old way. There's nothing to see here. These guys have just been day drinking. Right? The fact is that God's redemptive plan had moved beyond their small view. Tongues of foreign nations serve to remind the Jews that God's plan is bigger and way more global than they ever imagined. In our passage in Acts 10, what does it say about Peter's friends? They were amazed because the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Can you imagine that? What were the Gentiles doing? Praising and extolling God in other languages. We're not told which language they were speaking. I don't think it matters. What we do know is that it was an understood language, right? It had content and syntax, and that content was clearly praise of some kind. Probably thanking God for the permanent forgiveness of their sins. Anytime Israel was in unbelieving rebellion or even unbelieving skepticism, God promised to surround them by languages not their own as a not-so-subtle reminder that they have no inherent right to his favor or blessing. They have not cornered the market on God. And up to this point, Peter laid his hands on new believers and the Holy Spirit came upon them. Remember? That's how it went down. Peter could almost start to believe that he's the one doing it. But then this happens. 
That doesn't last for long. The Spirit moves ahead of Peter, in spite of Peter, to demonstrate that this global mission is under the Holy Spirit's control, and you're just along for the ride. Put another way, God does not show partiality, but accepts all that call on his name, which is the point of this passage, without partiality. So what is the Holy Spirit's goal in all this? It's to get all the people Jesus died for from all nations to the same table. That one. To share a meal together. To experience fellowship and shalom. Shalom, of course, means peace. The world has a very low definition of peace. When they use it, they typically mean simply not fighting right now. When they say peace, they just mean quiet. It's more like Cold War. That's not God's definition. His definition is this. How beautiful when brothers walk hand in hand together. God's definition is sharing a meal. There's something unique about sharing a meal together. The table's a great equalizer. And the things that occur on a meal are different than what happens when we sit in circles or on couches, isn't it? There's a reason the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And there's a reason why the culmination of all history will end with a banquet, the wedding supper of the Lamb. In the days of the apostles, there were plenty of people, even professing Christians, trying to keep all of God's people from sharing the same table. They were called the Judaizers, or Paul calls them the wolves, or the super apostles, right? They kept undoing his work of getting people to the same table. Paul would establish a church, he'd disappear for a month or two, and these guys would show up and undo all the teaching of the stuff we just talked about today. Wolves, he called them. What's the danger for us today in being wrong about this point? There are plenty of pitfalls available to us. This issue is not over, <laughs> which is why Paul spilled so much ink writing about it. Judaizers still abound, even within totally Gentile churches like ours. There are entire systems of theology that teach that God has one plan for the Jews and one plan for the Gentiles, and they're accepted. You find it everywhere. If you were to walk into a Bible bookstore and close your eyes and just randomly grab a book, it would probably be about that. This is the exact type of dividing wall that Jesus died to destroy. I cannot say it enough. Also, there are many who withdraw to create their own churches doing what they like best and excluding others based upon their fancies. Let me be clear about this, if I understand Paul correctly. God abominates deliberately segregated churches. There are some churches that insist on burdening people with rules of their own making, molding young Christians in their own image and not the image of Christ. Have you seen it? I mean, some funnier examples occur sometimes on the mission field, which is much a harder field. I get it. But have you ever seen a little white church? It looks like it's literally been plucked out of Massachusetts and plopped in the middle of the African savanna. I've seen those. Who were they built for? 
Probably the missionaries. Because those people never use it. How out of place is that? Or tribesmen from New Guinea wearing neckties. Is it not enough to see them clothed? Do we have to put ties on them too? To create them in our image? Because Jesus wore a tie, right? Look, we're all trying to figure this out. I'm not being overly harsh on that, but we're all trying to figure it out. But we need to be aware that it's the image of Christ that we're trying to lead people to, not creating people in our image. You know, and there's so many versions of this. I think if Paul was alive today, he might have a harsh letter for them too, like the, like the letter of Galatians. He might. I suppose he would oppose them to their faces, you know, like he did Peter. Paul spent his ministry using his freedom in Christ to flex to get into groups that he couldn't normally get into. He wasn't trying to get them to flex to fit in with his personal style or his distinctly Jewish habits. It is Jesus' plan to make one new man out of the two. That new man is the new covenant church, forged in the blood of Jesus and bound by the Spirit of God. Peter's big lesson and a lesson for us is that God in Christ shows no partiality. No nation under heaven can claim most favored nation status anymore. No custom or tradition is the rule anymore. Not Israel's, and spoiler alert, not even America's. I hope this is not a surprise to you. I know this is a lot to take in. But like I said before, if we don't get this, we won't get the New Testament. And I suppose like Peter, we're likely to forget these lessons and revert to our old ways. As we saw in the Galatians passage, Peter was still grappling with this 14 years after. Do you think we could use a reminder from time to time? I could. You know, perhaps the best way to internalize this is with a song. I remember things best through song. You're probably the same. Songs are good like that, and kids' songs are even better. Do you remember a lot of the songs you learned as a kid in Sunday school? I, I got them all in there. They're, they're programmed deep into the... They're in there. <laughs> There's a song I learned in church when I was five or so, and its lesson is simple and sublime. And if we commit to memory and sing in the spirit and in truth. Perhaps it will keep us in step with the gospel too. And it goes like this. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mike. Um,